Hello and welcome to another edition of Webinar Extra. This is where we bring you some more time with one of our webinar presenters so that we can answer some of those additional questions that, well, there just wasn't enough time for during the live event. Think of it as the dessert to the main course. You mean the bonus track at the end of the album. I mean the podcast after the night before. And if you haven't already seen the webinar, then you can head to our college online learning page and check it out. Or you can just keep listening, nodding sagely while you wonder what everyone is banging on about. The choice is yours. We hope you enjoy the programme. So Simon, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, the webinar a few days ago, how did you find it? I it, it was good, I thought, as, as far as I could tell in my own little bubble. Um, I couldn't see the faces of people out there, which is always difficult when you're talking to a large group of people. But uh, by the sound of it, people stayed online and, and enjoyed it, I hope. So I can confirm we had really good figures. So over a thousand optometrists um, tuned in for the whole session. So no webinar fatigue there at all. They were there right to the very end. So something they clearly find important and, you know, were hanging off every word. And and I know certainly actually I have printed off a couple of your slides, uh, your suggestion that actually you take those into the consulting rooms. You're absolutely right. It's really useful to be, you know, practicing and looking at these things every day to bring it to the forefront of your memory. It's nice to know at least one of those thousand people is listening. So thank you very much. For <laughs> So, um, you answered a lot of questions on, on the evening. There are some outstanding questions that we're going to work through now. And let's start with just the superior oblique muscle. And, and there are a number of questions about that. Tell us more about the superior oblique muscle. Why does it really throw us all out and, and cause confusion? Yeah, it is a bit of a weird one, isn't it, superior oblique? I suppose if we think of kind of how the extraocular muscles work in general, it's just a bit random. So we've got six muscles that move the eye in different positions. Five of them start from the, the apex of the orbit, from the annulus of sin. And four of those, the rectus muscles, have a fairly predictable, straightforward course. So, you know, the medial rectus, lateral rectus, they just move the eyes purely to the side, nothing more exciting than that. And the superior and inferior recti, whilst they've got other small secondary functions, in effect, the superior moves it up, the inferior moves it down. And that's they kind of do what they say on the tin but the superior oblique muscle is is a bit more random because it passes through the trochlea so the it's effectively a two-part muscle so you have the muscle belly then you have a, a tendon that goes through the trochlea and then there's another muscle belly um and, but it, as a consequence of the trochlea it it changes the line of pull of the muscle entirely so instead of pulling from the back of the orbit it's effectively pulling from the front and as the muscle inserts behind the equator, as it's pulling, as, as the, the line of pull is sort of forwards, it moves the eye downwards, but creates a lot of these rotational effects. And I know that somebody asked the question, so how is it that on the table I showed all the muscle functions, the superior oblique muscle gives rise to a small amount of abduction, abduction, so moving the eye outwards, but when we test the function of the superior oblique muscle, we're testing it when the eye is inward, so in adduction. So it's kind of this clash of these two philosophies and how, how is this possible? And I think the thing to, to be aware of and, and to sort of remember is that when we're doing our ocular motility testing, we're testing, in the case of the vertically acting muscles, we're testing the maximum vertical function, but 
the eye doesn't normally live there. You've got to get the eye into that position. You're sort of isolating that muscle function in a particular position of gaze. And it's no different from if you go and see a physiotherapist with a, you know, a, a pain in one of your muscles or something, they will rotate your arm or your leg or whatever to isolate that faulty muscle and then just sort of work out which one is, which one's affected. And that's exactly what we're doing in ocular motility. So you're moving up, you're using other muscles to move the eye into the position that isolates the thing you want to look at. So in the case of a superior oblique uh, muscle, if you're looking for the, its maximum vertical action, then you'd move, the, the eye would be moved into abduction effectively and then and downwards. So in the right superior oblique, you're testing it looking down to the left. The table I showed is looking at the function of the muscles in the primary position. So if you just stimulated the superior oblique muscle in the primary position, because of its muscle insertions, you get depression, you get in-cycle rotation, and you also get a small degree of abduction, but it's, it's relatively small. There's also this kind of quirk of um, a, a Brown syndrome. So Brown syndrome, I know someone else was asking about, you know, what's that all about and where does that come from? And so Brown syndrome is in is effectively where there's some sort of nodule on the tendon of the superior oblique muscle as it passes through the trochlea. So it has the effect of not of the, of the superior muscle, superior oblique muscle not being able to relax. So it's sort of locked into position. And this is a really nice example of, of mechanical deviation. So what we were talking about through the presentation was neurogenic conditions. These were nerve palsies. But a, uh, this is a, a Brown syndrome is an example of a mechanical deviation. So what you find with neurogenic palsies is that the affected eye will not be able to move into the field of action of the affected muscle. So if we think of the right superior oblique, if you had a right superior oblique palsy, then its, its greatest uh, deviation or vertical deviation will be looking down into the left-hand side because the muscle can't pull in that direction. But with Brown syndrome, because it's a mechanical deviation, it's preventing relaxation of the muscle. So it can function fine when it's looking down in sort of down into the left. But as it's trying to come up into the left-hand side, it, it can't. It, it, it's being held and sort of tethered in position. In, in a mechanical deviation, the, the affected muscle, the biggest deviation is opposite to the field of action of the affected muscle most uh, most commonly. So you would find in Brown syndrome, in a right Brown syndrome, you would have a big deviation looking up into the left-hand side rather than looking down to the left. There's one kind of quirky exception to this, which is when you get what's called a clicking Brown syndrome, which is where the, the nodule on the tendon does pass through the trochlea, but then gets stuck in that position and can't move back again. So then the eye gets stuck in the upward position and can't then move down again. But they're kind of, they're fairly obscure. And when you say clicking, can I, do, do you hear the click or do you need to put your finger on to feel the click? Or does you the can patient... hear and see the click and wow. it will sort of click up and stay there and then you get them to look down and it will click down again. But yeah, I've probably seen one of these in my entire professional career. They're not very common at all. Brown syndrome as a, as a rule is not common anyway. Um, and to get a clicking one, it is, you know, they're kind of like hen's teeth, but they do exist. But I think if we then think about the sort of this difference between um, neurogenic and mechanical deviations, I know somebody was, was sort of asked the question, you know, what about abductions and versions? I sort of alluded to those in, uh, in the presentation. Mm -hmm. This is something that we're all taught at university is if you compare the difference between duction, abduction and aversion, then it can give you a guide as to what's actually going on. And what we mean by that, just to reiterate, is that when we're doing our standard ocular motility test, when we're testing smooth pursuits, we are testing the version movement. So you've got lavo version, dextroversion, um, elevation, depression. They're, they're the kind of the, the movements of the eyes as a pair. So let's say in the case of 
um, this uh, right superior oblique palsy, you've identified that looking down to the left-hand side, there's a discrepancy in the position of the two eyes. So the right eye does not go down as far as, as the left eye. So if you were to cover the left eye, which is currently the fixing eye, so you take away the stimulus for fixation for the left eye, the right eye then has to make a downward movement to look at the, the object of regard. And if it can do that, then the duction is normal, but the version is underacting. So you have an abnormality on a version, but the duction movement, which is the eye on its own, it can move down into that position. And you know that the eye is not physically tethered and held like a, a mechanical limitation. Uh, so if you did the same with Brown syndrome, what you would find is looking up and to the left-hand side in uh, Lavo elevation, so both eyes moving together, the again, the right eye would not move up as high as, as the left eye. If you were to cover the left eye, though, the left eye wouldn't make any further movement. So the duction would be exactly the same as the version. And that tends to be indicative of mechanical deviation because the eye is restricted. It, it, whatever you do, it cannot physically move. To, to take it to the nth degree, what is theoretically possible to do is to do what's called a forced duction test. And that's where you physically hold the eye with some forceps and you pull it in a particular position. And that can be useful in cases where you're trying to work out if an eye has a complete paralysis of a muscle. So if the muscle just had no function, there was no nerve function to the muscle whatsoever, it still wouldn't make an outward movement. So this is where the, the differentiation between neurogenic and mechanical is sometimes a little bit fuzzy. Um, but on a forced duction test, a mechanical deviation like Brown syndrome would not make any further movement, whereas a, a complete paresis of one of the muscles, or complete paralysis rather, um, the eye would physically move um, if, with someone else doing it. But I, I don't think most people are going to do that in practice. I know I certainly would. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask, do you ever do the forced duction test in, in primary care? And No. Okay. No, it's purely prior to surgery. If there's any weird and wonderful conditions, then you know a, a strabismic surgeon might do that, but not not me perfect we had another group of um questions coming about the third nerve um pupils can, can you tell us more about third nerve and and things that would be useful for for listeners to think about of course yeah and as I, I think i've said already you've got 45 minutes to pack in as much information about an entire discipline of binocular vision as possible there's always going to be some casualties and i think giving details about the third nerve palsy um is is probably one of them but in effect Certainly how I was taught it in, in orthoptics is that it was made out like it was fairly black and white. If you had a pupil involved, um, third nerve palsy. So if you had um, a, a complete third nerve palsy with a dilated pupil, that implied that there was a compression uh, of some external lesion on the, the nerve. And if you had a normally functioning pupil, then it would imply that it was some sort of vascular cause. And as I started to talk about in the... Um, in the webinar it's to do with the location of the pupil fibers within the nerve now in most people they are peripheral sort of around the outside of the nerve so the core of the nerve that still receives its own blood supply um, in, a, in a vascular condition uh, then the core of the nerve is affected but the outside of the nerve isn't whereas compressive it tends to be the outside affected more than the core of the nerve uh, however it's not as it's nowhere near as clear as that and what i've what I found sort of to guide me really was a study or a survey of 29 cases of a complete third nerve palsy. 
And it's just a really interesting sort of overview of what really happens. So in this particular group of 29 people with third nerve palsies, uh, it found that nine of them had pupil involvement. So you might think, well, nine of them are then sort of due to compression and the others are due to uh, microvascular, but it wasn't like that. So <laughs> oh, no. Five were microvascular, so only four were compressive. And of the four that were compressive, two of them were due to posterior communicating artery aneurysms, and only one of them had pupil involvement, one of the two. So it then starts to show you that it is not as clear, it's not as, as nowhere near a definitive cutoff at all. So, um, uh, yeah, so of, of the nine people who had pupil involvement, seven of them were microvascular. So I think the take-home message is that if you get a complete third nerve palsy, and when I say complete, I mean all branches of the third nerve affected, whether there is pain, whether there is pupil involvement, just get that looked at as an emergency. I don't think it's us, it's right for us. Even, you know, like I say, I've got quite a strong grounding in binocular vision and I've probably only seen three or four third nerve palsies in my entire career. And that's coming from my background. For people working in general practice, they're just rare as anything. So just if you've identified it, just get rid of it as soon as you possibly can because it's just not right for us to take that risk. Slightly different theme, patients with that long-standing stable diplopia that we see time in, time out in practice, and then suddenly they, they, they turn up to the practice and they're like, hey, my double vision's getting worse or I'm breaking down more often. In those cases, is it really very much case-dependent or is there a rule of thumb? Should it always warrant a risk, a, a referral back to the, mm. the orthoptic team or, 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 or is it right to tinker with the prisms and try and get things right in practice first instance or is it very much case-dependent? I, I think it's fair to say that like everything that we do in our job, the devil's in the detail. And I think the one thing that I would really urge caution with is not just to look at the amount of prism that is required in these kind of cases. So you can sort of divide them into two categories that you've got those who are, I don't know, they, they've got some sort of vertical muscle imbalance and they've always been controlled with one doctor and then they need one and a half, then two, then two and a half, then three. And that kind of thing is, is, is one theoretical scenario. Another one is someone who has always had one diopter and all of a sudden there's this huge 10 doctors or something that they need. What you really need to think about though is not the size of the prism, it's the size of the deviation. And I think this is something that the vast majority of optoms maybe don't do as, as much as they could do. And that's to, to think about the measurement. Now, I... Again, I'm an orthoptist as well as an optometrist, so of course I'm going to use prisms all the time. I've got my own prism bars. It's something I use as a matter of course. And so if ever I find a deviation, a vertical deviation, whether it's symptomatic or not, I will measure it. Because let's say for the sake of argument, you've got someone who's got a four diopter right over left deviation. And they come to you and they're completely fine, no problems whatsoever, and you do nothing about it. You can see that on ocular motility, it's all concomitant. There's no sort of secondary deviations or anything like that. Then they come to you a couple of years later and they're telling you, do you know what, I'm starting to get a bit of double vision when I drive. And you look again and they've still got four diopters of, of deviation, but they need a one diopter prism just to, uh, on fixation disparity on the mallet unit or something like that. You'll find that there's a, a one diopter slip and you can give them that prism. And then a few years later, they come back and say, oh, do you know, my, that double vision is coming back again and they need two. If, if you see the prism going up, so one to two to two and a half to three, et cetera, like that, but the deviation itself is still four, 
then that's fine. That's just purely decompensation. That happens with time. That happens as people get older, their muscle function reduces. They can't hold that deviation quite so well. But if you have someone whose prism is going up from one to two and a half, et cetera, but the deviation is going up from four to five to six to seven, you've got a problem there because the deviation should not be increasing. And it's, it's unlikely, but it is possible for there to be some sort of compressive lesion on a nerve or maybe even the nucleus of a nerve that leads to this very gradual increase in the size of the, the deviation. Because it's happening gradually, the muscles sequelae develop as you go along. You don't have that sudden event, loads of weird misalignment, and then gradual onset of, of muscle sequelae, as would happen with a, a sudden onset, um, you know, a vascular course or something like that. So whilst they're obscure, I think if you don't look at the measurement, you don't compare the prism to the measurement, then it's hard to make that judgment. So that would very much be the case of those that sort of tick on and get a little bit worse, a little bit worse, a little bit worse. I think you need to look out for that. That's another important thing we alluded to in the, uh, the webinar is about measuring deviations with, with and without head postures. And I think that's, again, how far is your day-to-day optometrist going to take this? I think you have to answer that question yourself. But if you have the option and the interest, measure the deviation with and without the head posture because the reference without the head posture is so important. That's really what's what's going on with the deviation. The alternative scenario where somebody pitches up with all of a sudden a much bigger deviation than you've had before, these ones really do make you scratch your head. And I have a patient exactly like this. She's a lovely lady, but she just has this variable six nerve palsy. She's had this grumbling for quite a long time, just a weakness of one of her six nerves. And then all of a sudden, bang, it, it goes into crisis and she'll go from four doctors to 14. Wow. And you think, well, you're having another one of those little blips again, are you? And then she needs to get back to the orthoptic department for a bit just to sort of sort her out and then come back again. And these ones, even with the background that I have in binocular vision, they still make me stop and think, And did I just get the cover test wrong last time or is this a new thing? I think that's why just the best quality information you can get really helps you in the future. It's that making hay while the sun shines. Take the measurements while things are good because you never know when you're going to rely on And if we go really back to basics in, in terms of getting that really good quality baseline result, would you say that really optometrists need to be using prism cover test with a prism bar in order to, to, to get that? Or is it enough to use loose prisms from the trial frame in order to get a really reliable result? Whatever you've got. I mean, I, I would imagine that of the people who tuned into the webinar the other night, at best, 10% of them are going to have prism bars. But it doesn't matter. If you've got a trial case with prisms in, they do exactly the same thing. It's all about, it doesn't matter how you do it, just do it. And involve your patient. I can't get this across enough. People who have heard me talk before about this will be sick to death of me talking about the subjective cover test and the subjective prism cover test. It's so important. You can have a really, really small vertical muscle imbalance that even, you know, someone with my history, if you like, I would struggle to see a one to vertical um, deviation but that can really mess up your fusion if you've got a one dark to vertical um, deviation it can really really cause a lot of problems so if you're doing a cover test oh, how can i put it? i don't want to say don't be arrogant to just think you can see what's going on but just ask your patient if i go from side to side can you see what you're looking at moving just side to side or does it go up and down as well and as soon as they can see a small vertical deviation that guides you to say there's something else going on here this isn't just an exophoria this has got an extra vertical element to it and then that helps you when you're using your prisms to ask them when does this object stop moving up and down or when does it go the other way 
and they will tell you your reversal point. They will tell you the point at which you've got to um, to sort of the, the critical stage with the, the prism. So whether it's with the prism bar, individual prisms, frocked ahead, doesn't really matter, just do it. And then when it's recorded, it's locked in and you've got that reference point for the future. Fantastic advice, Sir Simon. Thank you very much. Member here has asked about diabetes and the extraocular uh, extra muscles. Um, what's most common? What do members really need to be thinking about or looking out for in patients who are affected by diabetes? Yeah, in my experience, the most likely thing that you get with with um, cranial nerve palsies and diabetes is a sixth nerve. But by far, I think the take home from the um, the pie chart that I showed at the end of the presentation was that it is the most common oculomotor nerve uh, disorder, and the causes of it, diabetes or microvascular accidents, is one of the most common. Again, so that's one I would look out for. But again, it's not impossible for third nerves to, to be associated with diabetes. They, that's another relatively common one. But in themselves, they're not. There's not many of them. But diabetes is a fairly common cause of a third nerve palsy. Can I ask you just from a practical um, point of view? So, um, wh- where you have seen um, palsies related to diabetes. Has the retinopathy normally been significant, just anecdotally from your experience, or, or, or would you say you can't really rely on what you're seeing at the back of the eye and what may be happening with regard to microvascular events? It's a good question. I, my inference would be, again, the number that you see, there's so, there isn't a huge body of evidence to call upon, certainly not mm-hmm. from my own personal experience. But I think it stands to reason that if you have someone whose diabetic control is not that good, they're more likely to be the ones that get the palsies and they, by definition, are more likely to be the ones that get the retinopathy. So it, could, I, could I say categorically there's a correlation between them? Not without doing a literature search, but, um, you know, and interested members, I'd urge them to do that. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you very much, Simon. Another question here about central nerve palsies. Just, I think this member's just general interest regarding blood tests and things. Is there something, anything that we should be recommending to to GPs or looking out for with regards to blood tests? Um yeah, so with the blood test, I think again it's about looking at the the markers for a vascular disease of some description. So, obviously, blood pressure, which in itself, okay, it's not a blood test, but a, a test of blood pressure is an important one to do. But the tests tend to be um, things like HbA1c, blood glucose levels. There would be um, HDL and LDL, so your cholesterol um, markers, but also in all the patients. Uh, looking out for potential risks of giant cell arteritis. So things like the ESR and the CRP um, would be important tests to do. So my my hope is always that when I refer patients off to the eye clinic, what, what I tend to do and what the local protocols recommend is that we refer to the hospital, but also notify the GP. So in the time that they're waiting to be seen in the eye clinic, they go to the GP surgery to get the blood test done. And if everything works well together, the two coincide so the hospital can access the blood test results. And I I have this maybe, I'd I'd like to think it's not a naive belief, but that the GPs know which tests to do based on that patient's medical history. So um, I don't specify, but I, I hope that they pick up on that. But, you know, I don't know. No, but absolutely. It's that challenge, isn't it? As a clinician, you have to trust the other people in the chain. You, you know, it's our job to to pick up the signs and to make that tentative diagnosis. But we're not, I guess, placed to be specifying exactly what uh, at the time of referral. And I, can, and I can think of some GPs in my area who would be quite affronted by a lowly optometrist like me telling them what blood tests to recommend for their patients. I think they'd probably throw their toys out of the pram, some of them. But um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, I suppose it's down to the relationship you have with your GP, but I would hope that they're all singing off the same sheet, really. 
That's great. Thank you very much. Now, I know we've spoken about this in the past on a previous podcast at length about prison prescribing and, and I guess thoughts from a, an orthoptic background and thoughts from an optometrist background because they don't always align. But some questions here from members about prison prescribing. How long would you recommend um, practitioners should allow for a natural recovery when prescribing prisms? Yeah, it's taking the case of a, a sudden onset nerve palsy, let's take an easy one, like a sixth nerve palsy or something like that. Um, I, I've watched cases where optoms have unfortunately got to trip themselves up trying too early. And it's going to come down to concomitance or the development of comitance and to the, the kind of when the deviation is stable. And they're kind of two separate things, really. Let's take the, say, say the scenario where you've got someone who's just had six nerve palsy yesterday. They pitch up in your practice on an emergency scheme and they've got rampant horizontal double vision when they look in the distance. And you can get singularity in the primary position with, say, 10 diopters. But as soon as they move their eye, ever so slightly to the left or to the right, the deviation changes. And as a consequence of that, um, you need a different prison power. So it's absolutely futile in those early days to try and correct the double vision. The other thing to bear in mind is that you need there to be double vision to stimulate both fusion and also to try and facilitate uh, the development of muscle secretely because the double vision is the, the thing that prompts the visual system to say, we've got a problem here, something quite right here. So if you were to theoretically control the double vision, that stimulus goes away. There's no impetus to do anything different. And that's perhaps more pertinent when you're talking about um, occluding an eye. So people, well-meaning optometrists might say, well, let's put a patch over the eye just to you know, stop the double vision. But if you did that permanently, then there's no stimulus for the visual system to kind of work differently and kind of work itself out of it. But coming as to sort of how far down the line you would actually start to use prisms, what would generally happen, and I would expect this to be the case for most uh, patients with sudden onset double vision, is that they would be referred to their local orthoptic department who would then take the baseline measurements and monitor them ready until such time comes as it is appropriate to use a Frenol prisms, so temporary stick-on prisms. And if the recovery hasn't happened completely, then that's where we are likely to be sort of involved in prescribing either the Frenol prism that they've got, um, so just incorporating into spectacles if possible, or just with the ongoing sort of tweaking of the prism powers. As to the timing of that, so as I mentioned in the, the webinar, the majority or the, the kind of the, the tipping point of when recovery tends to happen is about three months. Between three and eight months, there's a, a decline in how many people recover. And usually from eight months, you're not going to get any further recovery. By that time, though, you would have expected muscle sequelae to have fully developed. So, you know, the, you know six to eight months is, is, I think, a fair length of time where um, the visual system has been given enough time to sort of reconfigure those um, patterns of innovation. And therefore, the, the deviation is more concomitant. There's less secondary deviations, so it doesn't matter so much which eye you're fixing with. And it, it's sort of done as much as it's going to do on its own. And it's that kind of eight-month point and beyond you can pretty safely prescribe those prisms. Obviously, everyone is different. There's going to be exceptions to you know, any rule, really. But I think by the time that patient has been classed as stable by the orthoptic department and referred back out to optometric practice, that's, I think, where we can safely start to get involved with those prisms and build them in. But I would urge people just not to lose sight of the fact that you can get Fresnel prisms up to 40 diopters, but there's no, no way you're going to incorporate all of that into a spectacle prescription. So you just... Um, I think sometimes 
uh, some well-meaning orthopsists forget what we can and what we can't do. There are limitations optically to what we can do. I think the highest amount of prism I've ever had to incorporate into someone's specs was 25 diopters. Wow. And they, they were pretty hideous, but they worked. And, um, and, that was, and it was in a bifocal as well because... It, it, we had to be a, a tailor-made bifocal with a different prism veneer and they were they were special but he was happy amazing thank you very much final question um question here is there a link between chemotherapy and sixth nerve palsies or, or maybe we should think about more broadly just about fatigue fatigue syndromes and, and, and nerve palsies uh, any advice or tips you can give to members on, on that topic i think looking at the specific question of chemotherapy we obviously see a lot of people on chemotherapy um, in our day-to-day work, and they anecdotally all say, my vision's just nothing like it used to be. And there doesn't seem to me to be any one particular thing that causes that. So it's not as if there's a huge myopic shift, for example, or there's the onset of cataract, that kind of thing. It, it's not a, a clear correlation with, with those kind of um, examples. What does appear to be the case is that just chemotherapy is absolutely exhausting. And so if there is an underlying condition, it's going to come out when somebody, it's going to cause them to decompensate effectively. So in my experience, I would see people who have chemotherapy who begin to need a bit more assistance, they need a bit of prism that they didn't need beforehand. But that could have been if they'd had, as you say, chronic fatigue, if they developed some other sort of debilitating condition that just knocks them for six. Having done a, a brief literature search on the subject, yeah, there are some cases where people have developed actual cranial nerve palsies as a result of taking chemotherapy, but it's not a, a clear correlation. It's not to say you're definitely going to get one if you take this treatment. It's of thinking of different medications that we have to look out for the side effects, things like you know high-dose steroids. There's a much, much clearer correlation between those and cataract, for example, than there would be between chemotherapy and developing a cranial nerve palsy. As I did, I did a literature search i found the information myself the information's out there so i think for for interested optometrists with really specific questions like that i'd always urge them to to make um, such searches via the college resources as it were so so, so that's a great opportunity to to pitch the library services at the college so so you can make a search on pubmed you can do that from any computer but if you want to dig in and look at the the journal articles uh, the college will provide all members with an athens an athens login so you can access all pretty much all of the journals of relevance related to eye care in the world and and then read the full papers. But but I really talked to Anna Medline and the other search functions as well. Which one do you generally use? PubMed? Oh yeah, I use I use PubMed for sure. But um Eva at the uh, the library is fantastic. I, I can't um yeah, I can't fault what what the library team do. They're all amazing. And I use it regularly, my Athens login as well. So um, yeah I'm a big advocate for that. Simon, thank you very much for your time, giving up the last um, half an hour to answer those extra questions from the webinar. And thank you for a really enjoyable webinar, um, which I mean, I mean, I think a lot of optometrists will leave that with take home messages and we'll be doing things differently in practice. So thank you very much. I do hope so. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening to another webinar extra. For more college podcasts, head to the college website or just keep refreshing this feed every five seconds until another one appears. And please do also like, rate and subscribe and we'll speak to you again soon. Mm -hmm.